0: So tonight we are just continuing, working through Genesis. We started in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going all the way through. And tonight we're in Genesis 29, verse 31, through to Genesis 30, verse 24. And this is, let's be frank, a pretty wild section of text. There's a lot of family drama going on here. There's a lot of complexity going on here. What are we to make of it all? What is the purpose of this section of text. Second Timothy three and verse sixteen says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. So this section is breathed out by God. How is it profitable? There are at least two sub-ideas in this section of text. One is the deleterious effects of polygamy. So One thing that this passage actually shows us is that the Scripture doesn't condone polygamy. Rather, every instance, including this one, where polygamy happens in Scripture, it just records it matter-of-factly. But there's either a negative judgment by the narrator, in other words, something to the effect of this displeased the Lord, or what you see happening here is there's just chaos ensuing and resulting from it. And so as Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, has pointed out, if you just read through Genesis and you saw all the messed up things that all the people do in Genesis, you might think that the scripture supports all of these messed up things. But he says, upon a closer reading, what you see is these are actually the messed up things from which the characters in Genesis need to be delivered and for which they need to be forgiven. And so Genesis actually reads a lot like our lives, Where we do a lot of messed up things. That's just the fact. It doesn't mean it should be the way things are. But it just is the way things are. And there is a God in our day. As there was a God in the days of Genesis. Who loves sinners and who forgives sinners. In and through Christ Jesus. And so as we saw last week. Even as we began to look at this section. And we saw Jacob marrying both Leah and Rachel. This doesn't mean that the scripture condones it. Scripture from the beginning sets up marriage as between one man and one woman. Jesus affirms that in the Gospels. And so what we see here is not that polygamy is okay, but simply actually that polygamy happened. The second sub-idea that we see in this text is just the biographical history of the Israelite nation. These sons of Jacob coming from these four different women, become eventually the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, what we see is, this is where the Israelite nation came from. In fact, it's Jacob, whose name will eventually be changed to Israel, who is the father of all the sons here in this text. Those are sub-ideas in this text. They're there, but they're not really, I think, the main thing that God wants us to see in this text. The main idea here in this text is that it is Yahweh, God, who opens the womb and Yahweh who closes the womb. That's the main idea in this text. It's Yahweh who opens the womb and Yahweh who closes it. We see that within this text. We see like bookends around the verses that I read you. The covenant name of Yahweh used, as opposed to just God. When we see the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh transliterated. Um, Well, transliterated is a simple way to put it. Basically, that signifies the Hebrew word Yahweh. When we see God in this text, it's actually the word Elohim. Elohim. And so what you, what you see is early, early, early in the pages of Genesis, Elohim is used more often. And then God eventually reveals himself to his people as Yahweh. It's a more personal name for God. And so the way that you might, you might talk to people of different religions, and they might talk about God, but they're not necessarily talking about Yahweh. Right? There's a recognition of a creator being. What you see is that in Genesis 29 31, we read, When Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It's used, God's personal name is used in verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Yahweh. But then it's not used again until Genesis 30 and verse 24. She called his name Joseph, saying, May Yahweh add to me another son. Throughout much of this text, it's just the personal name, God. But what you see is there's a recognition in Genesis 31 by the narrator that it's Yahweh who opens Leah's womb and Yahweh who, who uh, causes Rachel to be barren, withholds children from Rachel. And then what you see is Rachel's recognition of the fact in Genesis So those are bookends to this event. Then you see Jacob's rebuke of Rachel in Genesis 30 and verse 2. In verse 1, Rachel goes to Jacob and says, Give me children or I shall die. In Genesis 30 and verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? The implication, obviously, is it's the place of God to give children. Not the place of a husband to give children. And then we see this interesting incident in verse 14 and following. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Okay, let's pause there. Apparently, mandrakes were considered to be not only aphrodisiacs, in other words, making people a little more interested in intimate things, but also they were seen as aids to fertility. And so this was sort of the value of the mandrakes. So Reuben is probably just a little kid. He doesn't really know what he found. He just found something, as my, my sons would say, we found something cool. And so he brings these mandrakes. All right. But it's because of their properties That Rachel says to Leah in verse 14, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Why? Because she thinks that it's going to help her become fertile and able to have a child. But Leah said to her in verse 15, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Okay, so let's pause here again. It seems that what has happened is that Jacob has stopped spending nights with Leah and has been spending the nights with Rachel instead. Alright? Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Okay, so so she's bargaining here. You give me this thing which is going to help my fertility, and you can have a chance to spend some intimate time with Jacob again. That's what's going on here in this situation. And who is it that conceives as a result? The one with the mandrakes or the one without the mandrakes? When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Jacob went out to meet him, and or Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. Remember, she was the one giving the mandrakes, not the one receiving the mandrakes. So she doesn't have them. So he lay with her that night, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived. Not Rachel. So it's not the mandrakes that open a woman's womb. But it's God who opens a woman's womb. It's very clear the way that this text is bookended by the Lord being the active agent in opening a womb. And Jacob's rebuke stating that it's the place of God to give children. And the mandrake incident, it's very clear that this is the main idea here in this text. And in the rest of Scripture, we see that confirmed. Psalm 127, verse 3, says that children are a heritage from the Lord. From who? The Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. And Psalm 113, And verse 9, which we sang actually at the beginning of the service, says, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Who makes a barren woman the mother of children? It's God. We see that Jacob's grandmother, Sarah, was barren, but God opened her womb. Jacob's mother, Rebecca was also, but God opened her womb. We see the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, given children by God. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 1, that God had closed Hannah's womb in verse 6, and that God opened Hannah's womb in verse 20. And so the main idea in this text is corroborated by the rest of Scripture. It's Yahweh who opens the womb, and Yahweh who closes it. Let's consider now what this means for our lives. Some people think that if we really want to preach sermons that are relevant to people in this day and age, we've got to abandon the Bible, this ancient text. But what we see here before us is that this is actually a very relevant text of Scripture. Because it's speaking very, very directly to the issue of infertility which is something that many people struggle with. It's a heartache that many people have to pass through and go through in the course of their lives. What do we make of this idea that it is Yahweh who opens the womb and Yahweh who closes it? We come, obviously, when we consider that to the issue of infertility. One of the things that we need to understand is that infertile couples will need to deal with the pain of their infertility. Kimberly Monroe is an author in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. I'm going to quote her heavily tonight, as she has a lot of good to contribute to this discussion. She says, In one study, 63% of women who experienced both infertility and divorce... Rated their infertility as more painful than their divorce. Just consider that. One reason for this is... As Proverbs 13 and verse 12 says... Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Monroe shares about her own struggle with infertility. You have a picture in your mind. You're married. You have a house with a white picket fence... You have a minivan and a dog, but where are the children? So as a young girl becomes a young woman, maybe gets married and has her life moving along, it doesn't turn out as she envisions it would. What she had pictured, what she had hoped for, doesn't come to pass. And that brings a certain heart sickness. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And then there's the deferred hope each month as a couple continues trying to get pregnant. Here's Monroe again. One unique thing about infertility is the hope despair cycle. At the beginning of her monthly cycle, a woman has great hope. I'm going to get pregnant this month. I know it. The month ends. No pregnancy. She despairs. The next month comes. Great hope again. But no pregnancy. Hope careens down to despair. When she's in treatment for infertility, the woman has hope. She forces herself through the process, trying more things, doing more things. She hopes, but the higher the hope, the deeper the fall. The despair intensifies after each failure to conceive. Infertile couples will need to deal with great pain. And they will need to deal with constant reminders of the pain. There are other people. Monroe says, as you grow up, people say to you, when you get married and have your kids, everyone assumes fertility. And I would add that people continue to assume fertility. People you meet ask if you have kids, and if not, why not? Maybe relatives pester you to have children when the painful answer that you can't quite vocalize is we can't. Then there are unavoidable, impersonal reminders of the pain everywhere. As Monroe puts it babies, pregnant women, diaper ads on TV. A woman in my church who was about my age went through two pregnancies while we went through these infertility procedures. I resented her. I'm ashamed of my anger towards her, but that's how I was feeling at the time. And Mother's Day. One year in our church, they asked all the mothers to stand up. Everyone applauded. There's nothing wrong with that, but it crushed me. I wanted to stand up too. Instead, I just dissolved. Holidays are hard. Christmas is very child-centered. Relatives with sweet babies come to family dinners. Baby showers? Impossible. A good friend is having a baby. Do I go to the shower? Do I not go? How do I show that I love her, yet I don't want to be there? Infertile couples will need to deal with the pain of their infertility, well, Yahweh withholds children from them. And that may be years, decades, or a lifetime. As friends and family members of those without children, One way that we can love our brothers and sisters without kids is not to pester them about when kids are coming. For all we know, they may be struggling with infertility and we're just twisting the knife. Rather, as we ask and inquire, don't assume fertility. Don't assume wrong desires or wrong attitudes toward children. Take a loving, empathetic and supportive posture If you do decide to inquire about a couple's childlessness. But understand, if you do decide to do that, that this might be actually a really difficult conversation for them. How would you talk to someone suffering tremendously in another way? Cancer? Spousal abuse or abandonment? Financial crisis? Talk talk the same way with those struggling with infertility. Tenderly. Lovingly, supportively, thoughtfully. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Infertile couples will need to deal with pain. Infertile couples will also need to deal with related decisions. Monroe asks, how long are you going to try this? How many cycles are you going to do? How long can you stand it? Then there are ethical issues. What are the options? Use donor eggs in vitro couples need to discuss and agree on these decisions again wise and mature family and friends will tread lightly here there are some decisions that people will face which are decisions between sin and righteousness but there are many many more decisions which are not decisions between sin and righteousness but simply about what's best for a particular person or a particular family in a particular instance. Again, whenever possible, take a supportive stance toward those wrestling through such decisions. Infertile couples will need to deal with pain and make tough decisions while Yahweh withholds children from them. Infertile couples will also need to deal with heart dynamics. Here are some heart dynamics to consider. One is... The idolatry of children. We see this in the text. As Rachel says to Jacob. Chapter 30 and verse 1. Give me children or I shall die. Idolatry. The worship of something other than God. Is diagnosed. When we would sin to get something. Or sin when we don't get something. Idolatry is also diagnosed when we feel that we need something other than God in order to be happy. And that without something other than God, we can never be happy. Idolatry is diagnosed when something other than God makes life worth living. And that's certainly what's going on with Rachel here in this text. She's saying as much life's not going to be worth living if I don't have kids it may be hard to hear especially when dealing with the legitimate pain of infertility but infertile couples may become idolatrous too will you be satisfied with God and what he sees fit to provide for you even if that doesn't include children consider it brothers and sisters And along these lines, you might be tempted to question God's faithfulness. Is God really faithful? Is His faithfulness great, as we so often sing? Listen to Kimberly Monroe again. One day I thought, God has so many promises for us, but one thing He didn't promise. Nowhere in Scripture did He promise me a baby. He has not let me down. It's good to desire a baby, but I cannot demand it of him. Children are a blessing, but they're not promised to us individually. You do not receive blessings because you're a good person or because you earn them. They just come. That was a revelation to me. When someone gets better from a sickness, it's better to say God is gracious rather than God is faithful. When somebody gets a job it's better to say God is gracious instead of God is faithful. And when somebody has a baby, it's better to say God is gracious than God is faithful. This is because God hasn't promised you health. God hasn't promised you work. And God hasn't promised you children. And God's faithfulness Is God's promise keeping. God may be gracious to you in a particular instance. Or he may not. But by definition you haven't earned grace. And therefore God is not treating you unjustly. If he doesn't give you the children that you desire. So don't idolize children. And don't question God's faithfulness. As Yahweh withholds children from you these are heart dynamics that you need to guard against if you're struggling with infertility these are heart dynamics as friends that we might have opportunity to speak to but again remember that your rebuke in this matter is as sensitive as rebuking a palliative care patient for his anger against god in letting him get cancer i don't mean to suggest that it ought never to be done But I do mean to suggest that if it's done, it's done carefully, kindly, empathetically, and sensitively. Another hard dynamic that infertile couples may have to deal with is feeling like something's wrong with you. Again, let's hear Monroe share her feelings. I should be on the bargain rack. I'm not a complete woman. I can't do the very thing that women are supposed to do. Surely we can understand where she's coming from. But we must remember that though infertility is the result of sin, the way that cancer, tsunamis, and drought are, just part of living in a sin-broken world, infertility is not necessarily a direct result of personal sin. certainly is no indication of inferiority, indignity, or even sexual prowess, or health, or whatever else someone may infer about themselves from their infertility. Yet this is how many people do perceive themselves when they learn that they're the infertile person in the couple. As Monroe goes on to say, I think a husband would have similar feelings if he were the infertile one. His masculinity is questioned. He can't father a child. He can't carry on the family name. With the husband, as with the wife, loving friends and family can stress that nothing is wrong with you simply by virtue of your infertility. We can affirm our loved one's value intrinsically and to us, and we can speak truth to them about the unrelated factors like sexual vitality, etc. And in coming to the last heart dynamic that we're going to consider tonight, I want to revisit Monroe's statement that the husband's masculinity is questioned. He can't father a child. He can't carry on the family name. This way of thinking, if it appears in our minds or our hearts as we struggle with infertility as men, ought to raise a very important question Whose name are we living to propagate? Is my life about leaving Ritter's Guards on the planet? Those who bear my name? Or is my life about leaving Christians on the planet? Those who bear Christ's name. As we wrestle with heart dynamics during infertility, we need to wrestle with ultimate priorities. Ultimate priorities. Like whose name are we living to propagate? Well, believers can make a legitimate case for the propagation of the human race through procreation as that is a creation command given in Genesis 128. The natural birth of children is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate fulfillment even of Genesis 128 is filling the earth with believers. Listen to John Piper on this idea. The purpose of marriage is not merely to add more bodies to the planet. The point is to increase the number of followers of Jesus on the planet. The effect of saying it this way is that couples who cannot make children because of issues of infertility can still aim to make children followers of Jesus. God's purpose in making marriage the place to have children was never merely to fill the earth with people, But to fill the earth with worshippers of the true God. One way for a marriage to fill the earth with worshippers of the true God is to procreate and bring the children up in the Lord. But that's not the only way. When the focus of marriage becomes make children disciples of Jesus, the meaning of marriage in relation to children is not mainly make them, but make them disciples. And the latter can happen even when the former doesn't. So let me just explain his train of thought there. Alright? Genesis says, be fruitful and multiply. God wants a full earth. But remember that in Genesis one there was no sin in the world yet. Right? And so the idea wasn't simply that the earth would be full, but the earth would be full of people who were not sinners. Right? People who were not worshippers of false gods, traitors, rebels to God, but that the whole earth would be full of obedient sons and daughters. What we need to recognize is that the way that sin and redemption informs Genesis 128, then, is not is that the goal is not merely that the earth would get full. Allah Genesis 128. But that the earth would be full of worshipers. And so one thing then that we can embrace. One aspect of the command in Genesis one twenty-eight that we can embrace is to make those people who already exist worshipers. We might not be able to bring more people into the world in order that the earth might be full of worshipers, but we can minister to the people who are already here in order that they might be worshipers. That's Piper's logic here in this section. And when we shift our focus like that, from the mere making of people to the making of people into disciples, we come to recognize that we can participate in the bringing the grand vision of Genesis one twenty eight to fulfillment, even through infertility. We make God's goal our goal, not ultimately that we would have children. But that he would have children. Not ultimately that our house would be full. But that his house would be full. Then we count the successes of the church as our own. Her growth as the growth of our family. And this is the way we all should think of it. Whether in fertile or not Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 verses 29 and 30 and listen carefully here truly I say to you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold what's going to come next anyone know it In heaven, that we give up everything here and then in heaven we get a hundredfold. Listen what comes next. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And he adds, lest we get into the health, wealth and prosperity gospel. He adds, with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. How can you have a hundred mothers? A hundred fathers? A hundred houses? The only plausible interpretation of this verse is that Jesus is speaking about the church. This does not literally mean that every mother in the church is literally our mother. Or every child in the church is literally our child. But it does mean literally that we are a real family. And though God has not promised To build our individual families, God has promised to build His. God is building a family of people who have come to Him by faith in Christ Jesus to be forgiven of their sins, to be adopted as sons, to be born again to a living hope. God has promised to build this family, the church. God has promised to fill the earth with believers. Don't believe me? The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 This is what Genesis 1.28 was always ultimately aiming at. That the earth would be full of the knowledge of God's glory as the waters covered the sea. And God is bringing that to pass not necessarily by adding children into your family but by adding children to His family. This is what God was doing even in Genesis 30, you know. We circle back around to our text here in conclusion. God's ultimate goal was not to build Rachel's family. God's ultimate goal was not to build Bilhah's family or Zilpah's family or Leah's family. Listen, God's ultimate goal was not even to build Jacob's family. It was not even to build Israel's family. Because we know from the scripture that God's ultimate goal was not merely to make a multitude of Abraham's biological descendants. God's main goal, then, in Genesis 30, was not the building of Rachel's family. That was her main goal, not his. It wasn't to build Leah's family, though that was Leah's main goal. It wasn't to build Bilhah's or Zilpah's or Jacob's. They were all very focused on building their own families. It was God's goal to build his family. And he does that as he sees fit. In his sovereignty, but in His benevolent sovereignty. Sometimes that means that He brings us the easy way. Sometimes that means He brings us the hard way. He unfolds the providence in our lives as we've seen over the last several chapters of Genesis, as He sees fit. Always for our good, always benevolently, but not always as we would do it. And that's true no less in the issue of children than anywhere else. But listen, you know who was born in Genesis chapter 29? Verse 35? Judah. Judah. You know who comes from the line of Judah? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah down through the ages, Christ Jesus. While all of this was going on, there was so much turmoil, so much chaos. This is like a bad episode of Sister Wives. This was not a pleasant dynamic in the family. We read in Genesis 29 and 31, Leah was hated, Rachel was barren, so neither of them were happy. And Bilhah and Zilpah, I'm going to go ahead and guess that they were not particularly happy to be pawns in this game either. The sin that was going on here was destructive. It caused chaos and turmoil in Jacob's family. Nobody was satisfied because they were all about propagating their own families in their own name. You know what would have made everybody real happy? If they got focused on God's fulfillment of His promises that He had made to Abraham. If they recognized that through Jacob's seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. If they could see, if Rachel could see with the eyes of prophecy... That this child born not to her, but to Leah, would be an ancestor of the Christ. That would have been satisfaction and joy, even in the midst of her own struggle with infertility. And so when we recognize that building his own family is God's ultimate purpose, and that all his, purpose, all his promises serve that end, And all His providence serves that end. And that we, by grace, have been called to participate in that building of God's family. It doesn't eliminate the pain of childlessness. But it does temper the pain of childlessness. It tempers the pain to know that there is a real family. The church. Which is really growing. Whose successes we may celebrate. And whose new births we may celebrate as children born of God. So as you work through the pain, the decisions, the heart dynamics of infertility. As you walk with others through that path. Even if it's not you personally struggling with that issue. Consider God's purposes. And submit to his sovereignty. And urge others to do the same. As to how you fit into that big picture. Learn to embrace His plan for your life. Even if it doesn't include children. Recognizing that it's ultimately Yahweh. Who opens and closes the womb. And that He is good no matter what He does. His purposes are good. His providence is good. Even when it's hard. As was read earlier in the service in Romans 8.32. He who did not... Spare his own son. But graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If the Father sent the darling of heaven. Jesus Christ to live a perfect life. In place of sinners like us who couldn't answer God's law ourselves. We failed to do what we should have. Jesus came to answer the demands of God's law on our behalf. We deserve to be punished for our sin, but Jesus on the cross bore the punishment that we deserved. If God sent His Son to do even that for us, it shows He cares. So we can look at the cross and we can know He cares. Even when He puts us through hard circumstances. So trust in Christ Jesus for salvation from your sin. And keep your eyes on Jesus and keep your eyes on the cross as a reminder that God is for you, Christian, believer. Even as he, goes, he puts you through hard circumstances and unfolds hard providence to you, you can, because of Jesus, know and trust that God is for you. That God is good.